Hello, lovely people. The world outside might be crazy. We might all be, you know, facing a really terrible uh, political economic situation, but we've still got films. We've still got a whole host of films to talk about. This is Invasion of the Potty People, where we talk about horror and genre films and occasionally TV and podcasts and other stuff that we love. Uh, as always, I am Russell and I'm wrangling this podcast into shape, but joining me as always is... If it bleeds, I see you. That's a preview for a couple of topics that are coming uh, in today's uh, episode. But uh, yes, indeed, um, I am Vincent as per usual. And is it my imagination or do I also see upon my screen a James? Indeed, I am in. I am James of the Poddy People Trio. And I hope the listener is having a very good day. Or if it's not, I hope it gets better because I'd love for you to smile, you son of a bitch. <laughs> As there have been some hints at, we're talking about a lot of alien things this episode because we've had in the past few months some cracking alien fare. We've had Prey, which dropped... Bizarrely on Disney Plus, that's right, a Predator film that's a Disney film is a weird prospect. We've got another gem that we'll be talking about actually next. And we've had a new Jordan Peele where he looked to the skies and gave me things to be scared of that I wasn't scared of before. I have not looked at clouds the same since watching Nope. But before, before all that, in cinemas right now as record, is they've re-released a little film that made some money. And it's not an adaptation of Smurfs. It is, in fact, Avatar. And Vincent, you're excited, A, that this is back, and B, that round the corner is what could be the biggest film of the year if it can beat Tom Cruise. Do you want to tell us what we're talking about in terms of our news today? Absolutely. So, yes, indeed. Uh, this um, Just this past week has seen the, uh, at the time of recording, the past week has seen the re-release of 2009's Avatar, showing in cinemas right now. Um, I have not yet been back to see it, but I will be. Um, fellow potty people, will you also um, give Avatar another 3D uh, cinema viewing? I will not, but that's because I watched on Disney+. Plus. I think they've now taken it off Disney+, Plus again. That but is I watched correct, it. they have. So I went on... Uh... Is it Cicado, The Road to Avatar? Sivaco. Thank you, Sivaco. Uh, I, I think we've Sivaco. all been on there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I should rewatch Avatar after going on it. I didn't talk, I talked about Aliens. So, you know, apt for this episode, but also didn't talk about Avatar. So I rewatched Avatar quite recently. Um, and instead of watching it on Sunday, I went and watched Old Boy instead, which was getting another <laughs> release. And that was oh, that was delightful. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about old boy. <laughs> that um, would be different. Um, no, I I am planning to go and see it in cinemas this weekend. I remember seeing it when it was first released back in two thousand nine, and I was just astounded by the experience, which was crafted from James Cameron, and I thought it made wonderful use of the three D. And I remember seeing it at home again the following year with my family and while I did still like the film I missed the experience that 
seeing it with the 3D in the cinema screens gave me. So I'm really looking forward to revisiting Pandora and getting that experience yet again. Indeed, indeed. I suspect we will, well, we will certainly return to talking about um, uh, uh, Avatar and Avatar The Way of Water in the future. Um, but I think what uh, it's worth talking about at this point is Avatar back in cinemas now, and it is once again, the all-time box office champion. Now, this isn't due to its re-release now. It's due to its re-release that happened in China uh, back in March of 2021. Now, it's worth noting that although Avatar was originally released in China back in its original run in 2009, it only showed in 3D screens. And back then, China had far fewer 3D screens than it does now. I mean, in general, China has more cinemas overall than it used than it had 13 years ago. So when re-released in 2021, Avatar earned an additional $9 million, which in blockbuster movie terms is a trifling amount, but it was enough to make it once again the highest grossing film of all time, if you don't adjust for inflation. Now, it's always worth noting that if you don't adjust for inflation, box you know, big box office is a bit of a false game. Um, you have to act if you don't actually adjust for inflation, it's not a fair comparison. But what the hell we do it anyway. What I think this does um, highlight is the is what is absolutely vital about the Chinese market, because the Chinese market is now the largest movie market in the world. Over the past couple of decades, the international market has become equally, if not more important, for Hollywood-produced films than the US market. And now China has actually overtaken the United States as the most significant market for um, Hollywood movies. Now, it is worth noting, of course, that only a certain, there is a quota, only a certain number of Hollywood movies get released in China. Therefore, studios will make a point of making sure that the ones that do get released are those they can make the most about, most out of. One of the interesting things I think, as has already come up, is that the buzz around the success of Avatar, uh, we often focus on the director, James Cameron, and the buzz around the possible success of Avatar, The Way of Water, also revolves around Cameron. And it's easy to see why, because Cameron-directed films have repeatedly topped uh, the list of highest earning films. A little thing called Titanic, and then Avatar, and now Avatar again. Having said that, it is always overly simplistic to credit individuals with these kind of events. Every movie that's released, um, particularly Hollywood blockbusters, are enormous um, industrial products that have literally thousands of people working on them. So to boil that down, say, well, it's because of this one person who's at the helm of it um, is you know, something that needs to be, I think, dealt with a bit more um, critically. And in this case, I think it's important to consider as far as the success, what we may expect for Avatar The Way of Water, let's look to the distributor, a little company called Disney. Disney acquired Avatar when they purchased 20th Century Fox. And I think it's fair to say they're more significant because you know, Disney is the biggest studio, the biggest media conglomerate in the world. And Disney can therefore produce the necessary distribution and marketing that Avatar The Way of Water needs, booking out all the necessary screens. Furthermore, of course, Disney own Avatar's biggest competition, Marvel, 
and Star Wars. The next Marvel film set for release is Black Panther Wakanda Forever, expected to come out on the 11th of November. And then The Way of Water comes out on the 16th of December. Therefore, the competition between the two will be minimal, if even existent. Notably, Disney have been putting particularly Marvel films um, onto home release on Disney Plus fairly quickly. Um, the I was pretty I was quite surprised that the theatrical window for both Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Thor: Love and Thunder seemed to be relatively short, and they came both films came onto Disney Plus fairly quickly. Now, therefore, um, although comparisons are made between Avatar's box office and that of Avengers Endgame, which briefly overtook Avatar as the top earner. Ultimately, this is a bit of a silly comparison, a, a silly idea of competition, because they're both Disney properties. Whether it's Avengers or Avatar or Star Wars, it's still Disney raking it in. Um, however, with and with all of that in mind, sorry, not however, therefore... I suspect that Avatar The Way of Water will be a big commercial success simply because its principal competition is not going to be taken, is not, is not, is going to be, if you will, already taken out of the water. I know. Um, yeah, so that's, those are my thoughts on, um, uh, Avatar has already proved that it can, that it can continually bring people back to cinemas which is, of course, quite interesting, seeing as there are those who would say Avatar's left no cultural footprint. It hasn't necessarily had a big impact on, cin on cinema or culture. But nonetheless, it's still bringing people back. Um, audiences flocked back to see Avatar in 2021, and it looks like they're going back to see it now. I am probably the very bad person to talk about that because I've been I've been in love with Avatar ever since I first saw it. Having said that, I think that the claim that Avatar doesn't have this major uh, cultural resonance can be seen to not be act not uh, is very dubious. It's a very dubious claim, and I think we've seen the evidence for that. And I suspect we will see further evidence that Avatar does have widespread cultural resonance when the way of water comes out. So yeah, that's um, that's the news and my comment on how things are going. Avatar is news and it probably will be for a long time to come. Yeah. I All I will say is that I this week have watched Terminator 2, I think for the third time this year. I think I've, I've watched it several times here. And um, if there's anyone who can do a sequel to a film, and make it exciting and fresh and different. And given his work on Aliens and Terminator 2, I think it is James Cameron. So I am entirely curious as to what he'll do with Avatar. It is his world. It is his playbook. It is his uh, sandbox. So he can do what he wants with it, and I'm excited to see what he does with it. And, yeah, I, it's going to be a Christmas bear moth. Yeah, it's interesting how... Avatar is repeatedly, um, let's say, quizzed about its status in pop culture history and the impact it's left. I mean, I've seen people saying, name, name one character. You can't name one character from the film. And I saw someone make a good point. Name a character from Seven Samurai. 
That is genius. Mm. Yeah, it's undoubtedly um impactful film. You won't get Magnificent Seven with it. And the step the basic plot line of it is been reused time and again. But yeah, name a character from it. And then the idea that it's left no cultural impact. I had a thought about this and people are happy to say, oh, nobody even remembers that film or it's not impactful or anything. But then I remember this film from 2016, The Huntsman, Winter's War. It was very well marketed. It had it was a Chris Hemsworth starer and in it had Charlie's Fron, Emily Blunt, Jessica Chastain, and alongside that, it also has Sope Derisu, Nick Frost, and Rob Brydon. Interesting cast list, by the way. And it's just... I That's only... I literally had to count that. That's only six years gone. And does... Did you guys even remember that film existed? Oh, yeah. I've seen it on... Clips of it on E4 and Film 4. I have never watched it. <laughs> I, wa- I watched um, yeah, The Hunt. I remember I very much enjoyed Snow White and the Huntsman and then, mm. you know, was quite keen to see the Huntsman Winter's War. Um, and I wasn't, but I wasn't particularly impressed by it. But it was, yeah, that it? Because <laughs> I literally sat in the cinema watching that film and at times I just suddenly remember that film exists. Mm. And it's just fascinating. I suppose with Avatar, the highest grossing film of all time, yeah, it's high in a perch, so people are obviously going to call it overrated and that, and I think you you got that with Titanic, and I think if another film usurped Avatar um, in the future, it probably gets a similar treatment. Everything but... that's pop, it's always somehow cool to slag off that which is popular. Mm-hmm. But I suppose time will tell, but I think the audience will come for Avatar 2 and probably the further sequels. Yeah. So, I mean, with the sequels, is the plan that he's going to step away? Have I read that right? Is it? I um, thought it was that he was making several and releasing them, or is it that he's just made a sequel? He's filmed filmed number three, and I believe he's filmed a bit of number four as we speak. Mm -hmm. Well, the way it worked is that um, the four sequels, right, Avatar 2, 3, 4, 5, um, are essentially all being produced and shot um, kind of simultaneously. Um, I say that, I mean, back to back, um, because that allows for, um, it's, it's more economical that way. Um, you know, it may have been something like, a, I think Disney uh, plowed like a billion dollars into the production of the four films. So that's 250 million each which as blockbusters go is, you know, big, but not massive. And relative, mm. and as blockbusters go, not um, excessive, I suppose. Horrified to talk about these amounts of money, I know. Um, <laughs> as it stands, there are rumours that Cam- that James Cameron himself may not direct the fourth or fifth one. So he's obviously done the second one, and he is doing the third. He might not do the fourth and fifth, or maybe he just won't do the fifth one. Um, I suspect that will largely be a matter of, you know, how the subsequent productions go. I mean, if the third one is already in production, um, if the second one isn't a success, then in theory, Disney could pull the plug. 
um, I think I'm fairly confident it will be a success and it will justify the investment. Um, whether Cameron himself will stick with it, I guess, will kind of depend on what he wants to do. Mm. Um, he might, you know, he might decide, well, you know, I started, I've started, so I'll finish. Um, or he may have such uh, confidence in the material that he's happy to let someone else take over and maybe he'll want to do something else. You never know. Could do. Um, I think I'd be kind of surprised if we get another three films after The Way of Water, knowing the way Cameron operates as he is very much, you know, control freak. He wants to make sure everything is his way. I mean, read any production stories from The Abyss or um, Titanic or anything. And, you know, that's he is he's notorious for having to control um, what he's involved in. Um, I would not envy a director who had to take over James Cameron's baby. Um, although, you know, I mean, uh, having said that, you know, he's he did oversee, he, he wasn't involved in um, any of the recent Terminator sequels. Um, and he even spoke highly of Terminator Genesis, which I find very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and then again, you know, and he, nor did he direct, of course, Terminator Dark Fate. So you know, maybe he's mellowing in his lat- in his uh, latter years. There was also um, Alita Battle Angel, which he spent so long trying to get done, and then at the end of it, he just stepped away and let Robert Rodriguez direct. And by, by all accounts, he seemed pretty happy with the final product. And I thought it was a good film. I didn't, but it's a good, <laughs> but it's certainly a good point. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess we'll see. Um, personally, I'm, I'm ha- I'd be happy for him to do all of them because I will say, you know, James Cameron is my favourite director, number one. And, you know, he hasn't made many movies and I'd like him to make another three after this one. It is fascinating to think that, just a random thought for me, but as you said, 250, mil- 250 million, was it, that mm-hmm. Avatar sequel? Yep. With the reshoots, Justice League cost more. <laughs> oh dear! Oh. Worth every penny. <laughs> sure. I know one thing. Wherever we go, this family. And from one alien encounter to another alien encounter, you'll see a theme that's coming across. We are going to review this month a little film by a little director called Jordan Peele and his new film, Nope. And we're going to limit our spoilers because part of the fun of Nope is going in knowing as little as possible. In terms of a synopsis, I'll just read what's on IMDb, which is the residents of a lonely gulch in inland California, bear witness to an uncanny and chilling discovery. And I guess even saying it's about aliens is slightly spoilery, but they're all over the posters and all over the marketing. Uh, yeah, this is the third film from Jordan Peele that came out in August, and it is a big, sprawling summer blockbuster. It's two hours and ten minutes. Its cast is cool and fabulous. It's got Daniel Kaluuya back in a Jordan Peele film after Get Out. 
Kiki Palmer is in it. They play brother and sister. Brandon Pera plays a fabulous character called Angel Torres. Michael Wincott, who has had previous experience of aliens, including uh, some xenomorphs on a spaceship that were, uh, shall we say, resurrected for our enjoyment. It has Stephen Yun in it, who is just killing it, just having a fabulous time, sort of left The Walking Dead at just the right point. And Keith David has a small but key role, yeah. I so this came out. Um, I saw it when it came out on the opening weekend, and I was quietly blown away by it, as I am always by Jordan Peele. I adored his vision, I adored what he did. Uh, he does something quite special, particularly in the second half. The first half is quite slow and meditative and has all these themes in it, and there's a lot of stuff in uh, this film. There's an entire thread of the film that's set on a, on a TV show. And I'm not going to go into too much into that, but it's kind of key into its message and themes about our relationship with uh, the world around us, shall we say. But this looks and sounds phenomenal. Hoyt Van Hoytema's cinematography is fabulous. If you have seen the rig that they set up to do some of the night shoots and most of the night scenes, and there are a lot of night scenes in this film, are shot in the day and it's day to night, which is just remarkable. Uh, Michael Abel's music is fantastic. Nicholas Monster's editing is spot on. Uh, but yeah, this isn't for everyone. I have friends who have not jotted this. I'll be honest, there was a group of four sat in front of me who slowly sunk into their seat the longer this film went on. This film is not the film it's being marketed as, which is part of its charm for me, is that it's being marketed as something and it isn't quite that. And it certainly feels closer to a uh, spill to one kind of Spielberg summer blockbuster than another kind of Spielberg summer blockbuster. I will say there's one that you think it might be like it's set in a desert and there are potentially alien encounters, but there's another one that's a bit earlier in Spielberg's uh, cinematography that it apes closer to me. Uh, yeah, so this is in my top 10 of the year already, and I can't see it leaving that. But I wonder what you guys thought of this. What did you think of Nope? Did you enjoy Jordan Peele's uh, third vision of horror? And this is a horror, yeah? We're going to call this oh, a yeah. horror. Yeah, yeah. part of our genre. Yeah, um, horror's a broad spectrum. I think this can yeah. fall underneath it. Yeah, I think I thought of, um, I felt that Nope um, did a brilliant job of combining referentiality and innovation and i would call it a meta sci-fi western horror um uh, or if or if i was to be if i wanted to confuse people which i I enjoy doing i'd say that nope is kind of like king kong meets arrival Ah. and okay for those people who have seen it will probably understand why i describe it in those terms (laughs) without while also it's being somewhat cryptic. What I especially found impressive about Nope is I especially enjoyed its meta aspects, its meta cinematic aspects, because one of its key themes, I think, is the power of the gaze. That's G-A-Z-E, people. Um, so the idea of what it means to look, uh, what it can, how looking can impact upon both they who gaze and those who are gazed upon. And also, it's certainly Jordan Peele's largest scale mm. film after the intimacy um, of Get Out and the a larger scale with us. But this is 
it, it's, it's it's a grand spectacle. It's a it's a blockbuster. Um, that's why I mentioned the films that I do. Um, but it also does, I think, a fantastic um, idea of the the horror in this film is often to do with space. There is a great terror of open and exposed spaces, and also a great terror of enclosed spaces. Um, I find that particularly interesting that it's using, so it's a wonderfully um, cinematic um, device um, throughout the film as it's exploring what the way we feel about spaces and what spaces can do with us. Um, yeah, I, I was a big fan of Nope. And I actually saw Nope with um, a group of friends. Um, the funny thing was I'd seen movies with all of them individually before but it was the first time the five of us had actually managed to see um, a movie at the same time and we all enjoyed it we've got fairly different tastes but five fairly different fellas we all enjoyed nope and my goodness the pub discussion afterwards <laughs> so much like oh this oh yes that and this and this and this and, this. and i think any movie that can keep you in the pub for um, a chat that lasts nearly as long as the movie is doing something right <laughs> Yeah, free for free, because I also loved this film. I think I think what Jordan Peele did was create a grand spe spectacle that was so brimming with originality and had it executed so fantastically. It's almost like um, back in 2020, 2021, when people were worrying about the state of cinemas, it's almost like Jordan Peele saw that and think, I need to create something that's going to make people go to the cinema something that's designed for the big screen and this feels exactly that something to watch on the biggest screens and god it must have it must have been fantastic on imax but um on the regular screen i saw it on i thought it was a tense and humorous ride that was unlike anything else i've seen in, tw in 2022 i thought there was fantastic ideas about the way people grapple with trauma while also having intersect an intersection with the way the entertainment entertainment industry uses animals and the mistreatment which uh, offer the audience and how how culpable we can be. But for me, the standout moment was, as Russell said, on the TV set, which was one of the most burned in my mind sequences I've seen in a film all year. Um, and this isn't a film which I've managed to see in cinemas a second time, but if it, but I think it's gonna unpack so wonderfully upon a rewatch, much as Get Out and Us did for me. And really, it's just another reason for why Jordan Peele should be allowed to make whatever the hell he wants. Oh, yeah, he makes also, these thematically rich films that are just like we we could go into a spoiled conversation it would take us a while to unpick all the things that are going on in nope as there is an us and get out and it's the guy is remarkable like we just talked about how james cameron and, and around the way how great director he is and jordan pillars is exactly the same for me like he is just this director who does exactly his own thing I think maybe in the future we should do some kind of deep dive into Jordan Peele, maybe have an in-depth discussion about his uh, work to date. Uh, yeah, because, yeah, there's so much to there is so much to unpack. Um, you know, I think that I'm uh, I'm somewhat unusual in that I 
don't rate Get Out that highly. It's a film that I largely admire what it's doing, but I have some problems with it dramatically. Um, And Us, I actually preferred. Nope, I... uh, hmm. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to rank them today, maybe another time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. There is so much going on in Nope. I, the, the points you talk about being burned into your brain there, um, James. I, yeah, I'm not. Every time I, I see like a discarded shoe, it's probably going to make me think, yeah. <laughs> um, plus, you know, shows how much you can, you can do with um, taking. Um, classic images, um, say, of a horse and a, a rider on a, upon a horse, and take them into so many in other interesting directions. And it has a great use of the Scorpion King. So it does. <laughs> so it does. <laughs> and I'll just say, of a fantastic cast, Kiki Palmer is phenomenal, is a wonderful screen presence, but also Daniel Kaluuya is exceptional here in playing quite an introverted character quite a drawn-in character who doesn't really interact out the world as much as he has in other roles and yeah I think the central five are just all fantastic Mm. and I think that a a lot of Peel films all Peel films come with great performances he kind of gives space for his actors to go off and give these incredible performances because I rewatched Get Out and Us before this, and I, I I'm a fan of Get Out, and I'm a fan of Us in spite of having some of the threads that I can just pull if I want to. Like, where well, how how do the clothes work in Us? That's what I'm curious about. How does how do the clothes work in where Us goes? But that's beside the side because all three films are films that I think are really fascinating within their own horror subgenres within what has come before and also conversationally of where America is and has been and the uh, traumas that are almost built into the history of it. It'd be great for there to be a a British equivalent of a Jordan Peele that could do the same for us, like great horror that is commenting on how bad we are. (laughs) What about in us? Yeah. So we all think you should go seek out Nope. It is, uh, a joy and it's a yep as opposed to a nope isn't it guys <laughs> absolutely one of oh, those yeah. movies where the title lends itself to all manner of jokes there's something out here yeah nah 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 no 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 And another alien encounter. So the Marvel Cinematic Universe has a lot of alien and cosmic encounters. And so we're going to do another one of our dives into the MCU. We're going to talk about phase one. So we're going to do this every couple of months. We're going to jump in and take a phase and talk about some of the films in it. And James, you're going to lead on this. What are we going to talk about this time with Marvel? Well... With Marvel, it's now known as an all-encompassing pop culture juggernaut. And it feels like there's an inevitability to a Marvel project coming out, whether now it's on 
Disney Plus TV show or it's um, the blockbuster films. But if you look back on the early days or the first phase, it's quite interesting to see how much of, of a risk this whole venture was considered. So let's go back to 2008. Um, this was at the point where the X-Men franchise, had we thought it was over with. We had three films and we thought, oh, maybe we'll get another Wolverine one, maybe a Magneto prequel, but we're not going to have any more X-Men movies, right? And there was also Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy had come to a close and we there was talk of Spider-Man 4, but um, unfortunately that never turned out. And there was also the Fantastic Four films, which did well enough, but only enough for two films. So the question was going to be, what next? There's, there's still the appetite for superhero films. What can we do? And there was a little-known character called Iron Man, who was, at the time, a C-lister at best. And in the, the and there was mooted, oh, a little, how oh, about an Iron Man film? And it was going to star Robert Downey Jr., a man who, let's say, had been mired with controversy up to that point. It was interesting to it was just interesting to see how this film was going to turn out. The next thing you know, it's a comeback hit for Downey Jr. and a smash hit for Marvel Studios. It did well, but what was most tantalizing were happened after the credits. We had Samuel L. Jackson suddenly appear with an eye patch as Nick Fury to talk about the Avenger initiative. It was a nice tease for comic book fans, but little did we know it would just be the first step because a month later, Universal released The Incredible Hulk starring Edward Norton. An interesting lesson in rights issues. Marvel had the film rights to The Incredible Hulk character, but they couldn't release any solo Hulk film without Universal distributing it. But what was most interesting happened again at the end of the film. Because you had Robert Downey Jr. making cameo appearance to talk about a team being put together. And what initially seemed like a little hat tip to the fans came with genuine wonder. Because could this large-scale team-up actually happen? That seemed like something really different to see on the big screen. 2009 was a marvelous year. No MCU films came out that year, something which wouldn't happen again until 2020. Uh, it was something about the world at that time, but it's just interesting how 2009 was the last time we didn't get a Marvel film, and it had to take one thing and another for that to happen. But then the following year would understandably become Iron Man 2, the sequel to the box office hit, and this one introduced Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, Don Cheadle replaced Terrence Howard as James Rhodes, but most crucially, Mickey Rourke wanted his board. I want my board. I want my board. <laughs> uh, again, a really interesting thing happened after the credits because you had Agent Phil Coulson. Remember him? He looked at this mysterious hammer which was in a crater. Now, what could that tease? The following year would introduce two key characters to the MCU as the scope expanded because next thing we know you had these earthbound tales swapped for a journey to Asgard to introduce the god of thunder for his mischievous brother Loki as played by then unknowns Chris Hemsworth 
with bizarrely bleached blonde eyebrows back then. And a favourite boyfriend of the internet, Tom Hiddleston. It was also a sneaky way to introduce the bow and arrow wielding shield agent, Hawkeye, as played by Jeremy Renner. But then later that year, we would journey back to World War II for the adventures of Steve Rogers, who would bulk up to become a little-known figure known as Captain America and introduce Chris Evans from the Human Torch to the Sentinel of Liberty. Now, that's a lot of characters introduced in rather successful films, almost like they were building up to something. Lo and behold, 2012 would see the release of a film called The Avengers. This would be the culmination of these of four years of cinematic planning. It was a crossover that felt like and unlike anything we'd seen before. And it was a risk on Marvel Studios' part because it depended on would audiences go for it? Would they care about Thor and Captain America and Iron Man and Hulk to see them all unite in a team-up film? And it worked. The film took $1.5 billion. And this was at a time when you only had like a few films crossed the billion dollar mark at the box office each year. It's not like 2019 where nine of the top 10 crossed the billion dollar mark. And this was a bona fide success. It showed superhero cinema was not going away anytime soon. And they closed off the first phase, again, most interestingly, after the credits, by teasing a certain purple villain. Hmm. I wonder if he'll have any bearing on the future. Uh, I guess we'll have to see. So phase one was an interesting inaugural year for what would become the one of the biggest franchises known to man. And I think it's the biggest franchise in cinematic history now. But yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. um, Well, there are more. I mean, there are now almost 30 uh, movies within the MCU and plus the TV series um, and box office wise. Yeah, it's close. I think it's close to 30 billion it's taken. Hmm. And it's interesting that all stemmed from a film based on a C-list figure starring an actor that people were like, should he really be given a blockbuster hit? (laughs) Swings and roundabouts. Now, we've each picked a film from Marvel Phase 1 to discuss. And I'll go first. And I'm going to go for the first Chris Evans solo film. It's Captain America, The First Avenger, directed by Joe Johnston, who previously did The Rocketeer. And what you have is this solid period piece, and which is such fun and stands apart from other MC flicks in really interesting ways. Is in the lead up to the Avengers, Cap was one of the last pieces they had to establish, and they had to capture who the character was and why audiences should really, I guess, care about him. And I think they did it really well to capture the character. And a highlight is a grenade sequence where it shows that, yeah, he doesn't have the muscles just yet, but his heart is absolutely in the right place, and he will do what need, what needs to be done right, really. And it's interesting how they sell the Stephen Bucky relationship well, considering how much it factor into the rest of the Captain America films. And it has this really fun sequence where the Star Spangled Man song plays, where essentially Cap is used as a marketing tool to sell bonds for the US Army. And it does this through just a really lively little musical number 
has a really fun song playing and a lovely homage to the famous comics cover where Captain America punches Hitler in the face. Um, that's my film. Vincent, I believe you have a phase one film you'd like to discuss? Indeed, yes. Released the same year as Captain America, the first Avenger, came four. Um, released in 2011, directed by Sir Kenneth Branagh, um, who, interestingly, came in for a bit of flack around surrounding um, the film. There was um, uh, Roger, uh, 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 Roger Ebert's um, review in uh, the Chicago Sun, Chicago Sun Times commented about, why is Kenneth Branagh doing this? Well, maybe he get, he did, he'd made that Hamlet. Get him in. He does that Shakespeare crap. Um, which is a totally um, unfair way of um, treating <clears throat> of treating Branner and indeed treating Thor overall. Because what um, Branner's very, I think, bombastic style of filmmaking brought to Thor was exactly what was needed. Um, one of the ways Kenneth Branagh is often um, associated with um, Shakespeare on film and uh, making that more making Shakespeare more accessible, and one of the ways he did that is to go from is to often do it quite somewhat over the top, um, and that works entirely well for Thor because Thor is in some respects one of the most absurd superhero characters. Because what are we saying here? So, hang on, this is the god or. The, the race of gods from Norse mythology, but we're going to kind of recast them as like powerful aliens, even though they look like humans. They're they must be very long lived and they've got this weird sort of technology, which is also kind of magical. And then we're going to make this all come together. And how are we going to tone it down? And the answer is to embrace that absurdity, embrace the um, the camp, embrace the ludicrousness of it all and that's what thor does thor is um knowingly absurd and you've got that in um uh, branner's quite sweeping direction you've got it in the very um high powered performances um i've already mentioned you know chris hemsworth the unknown and the very and the deliciously oily tom hiddleston and let's not forget um the <clears throat> Um, the the some the, the very st stolid and dependable Stellan Skarsgård and Idris Elba and in the perfect role I think absolute genius casting Sir Anthony Hopkins as Odin ah oh, could it be better um, and then you have uh, Natalie Portman um, being the, the 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 human who's that ah uh, what is happening exactly. Um, and I think that's what makes um, Thor work so well in that we've got big bombastic action and we also have a lot of comedy. And note, Kenneth Branagh's always been really good at comedy. One of my, I think the first Branagh film I actually ever saw was his um, adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing, um, which is a deliciously funny play, um, but it, and that happens to be a very well done uh, film adaptation of it. Um, one moment from Thor that I think that always completely cracks me up is when Thor um, walks into a pet shop and bellows, I need a horse! And we cut to the store clerk looking up with this priceless expression, being like, what? Uh, sorry, it's a visual gag audience. You can't see. So, <laughs> you know, watch Thor. It's on Disney Plus and just look, and look for that moment and just pity that poor store clerk who's just heard the most ridiculous thing in his life. 
Um, but as well as that, there are also some wonderfully touching moments. There's a scene between um, Chris Hemsworth's Thor and Natalie Portman's Jane Foster, where they discuss um, now the uh, what Asgardian technology is like, and it, I think that's a very beautiful scene. Um, plus, when it comes to the action, it delivers. Yeah, I uh, hugely um, enjoy Thor after repeat viewings. Um, some years ago, I wrote um, a book chapter about Thor as a piece of transnational cinema. Um, so it's interesting from the perspective that many of the people involved in the film come from all over the world. But also, I think the ideas of transnationalism and border crossing um, run all the way through the film. Um, uh, just to give a very quick example of that, um, a central motif is the Bifrost, the rainbow bridge that literally cuts across, comes, goes across space and brings people together. And in the very final images and the credits of the film, we see the world, uh, what's known in Norse mythology as the world tree, Yggdrasil, um, and presented in the film as this inter, as this cosmic interconnection. And so that's what I uh, would say about Thor. It's um, enormous fun. It's at times quite touching, uh, and it is ultimately, I think, a film about connection. And speaking of connection, perhaps it's worth thinking about what happens when you've got a bunch of fairly dysfunctional, super-powered individuals, and they need to, I don't know, assemble? I think you're hinting at what I've picked. Yeah, I have picked the Avengers, or as it's known over here, Avengers Assemble, because... We have a pesky TV show from the 60s all about non-superpowered Avengers doing spy-related stuff. I I have seen the film that I can't really remember what it was about. It wasn't very good. Anyway, I have picked The Avengers from 2012, which is arguably the most important film of Phase 1. I mean, Iron Man has a shout for it. Iron Man does a lot of the initial foundations for the MCU. It's a model that's being repeated several times by this franchise of introducing us to a hero before they're a hero and taking them on a journey where they become the hero by the final credits. It's not new in superior, uh, the superior genre. And when it's done well, it's a darn good ride. And Iron Man is a darn good ride with a final post-credit scene that sets up so much. But in Avengers Assemble, something seems to happen, particularly in the last act. So all these threads that have been introduced to us, the, Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Hawkeye, Black Widow, Thor, and Captain America all come together to face a threat in the form of Loki, who again has already been set up in another film. It's actually quite remarkable how much they set up before this. It is an early example of those kind of um, qualities that TV has in terms of an overarching narrative that is building to a dramatic conclusion is here, is in this Avengers film. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I rewatched it. I think the first half is a mess. I think the first half has all these uh, has all these kind of like scenes, all these things, all these pieces have to get all to the right place so they can all be together for the last big act. But the last big act is outstanding and it is the point where for me the MCU becomes something much more ambitious. This is regrettably directed by Joss Whedon, and the less we say about him, the better. But, you know, it's not terribly directed. 
I'll say that he is a piece of shit, but he's also, you know, not the worst director. Sad that is the case. We could do a whole podcast of directors who are perfectly fine, but also terrible human beings. I mean, we referred to the X-Men films. There's one in there. Um, anyway, so this is uh, a lot of talent is in here behind the scenes on camera. The actors have had films to get used to their performances. And by the point we reach where the threat culminates and Loki and his alien army are bearing down on New York, we get a sustained 45 minutes or so of action where our heroes are taking back New York, are fighting these alien soldiers and giant, terrifying alien armoured dragons coming in for a portal in the sky. And it's just ideas that are very ambitiously used and setting the path for where Marvel will go thereafter. So it is the culmination of crossing over the cosmic and the, uh, I guess you'd call it real, or the cosmic and our Terrestrial? Terrestrials, the cosmic and terrestrial, which is used in four for the first time, but that is uh, used mostly to beam in things like a hero or a threat. And in this, it's a giant gaping portal is open and it allows the threat to come in, but it also allows Tony Stark to go out and to briefly glimpse at what's out there. And that is what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done so well over the next 20 films was to give us glimpses of what was out there more and more and more of them and at the same time as being cosmic and spectacular it never loses its humor it never loses its characters and it never loses why we are drawn into this these wonderful bunch of humans uh all together even loki who is the villain is utterly charming utterly flawed utterly fascinating and there's a reason why he is one of my favorite characters and why i love his tv show is because he is a character who is complicated beyond just being a moustache twirling villain. And he has a great interaction with our heroes. It's particularly a puny god moment with a certain big green man, which is great. And there are many great moments like that in Avengers. There's the wonderful shot of all the Avengers as they are doing their thing and the camera twirls around them that has been aped by blockbusters ever since. They've tried to recreate the hero moment. But why I think Avengers is so fascinating is in its um, end credit scene in that we are, again, introduced to a giant purple man by the name of Thanos, who looks a bit different from he does thereafter, but we'll not get into that. But what it is, is it's setting up about 20 films worth of narrative in one moment, which is incredibly ambitious. And when it gets to its fruition, we'll talk later on about phase three. When it gets to the end of that phase and it is this completion of this entire arc and journey of the Infinity Stone saga, it's quite remarkable. So for the flaws in the first half, and I'm not saying I don't enjoy the first half of the Avengers, the second half, as it brings its characters all together to fight to save the world and gives them glimpses of what's out there, of how far they'll have to go, which becomes a sort of thing for Tony Stark thereafter and it is his driving thing is that he has glimpsed what is out there and it's pretty terrifying to him which yeah i'd be terrified if i got a glimpse of that all the way to an end credit scene that sets up the next decade or so is it over is it bad no just under a decade of filmmaking but about 20 films a huge sprawl of heroes and villains to come all to reach a certain point yeah, that's why I picked it, because I could have picked Iron Man, because I do think Iron Man is a fascinating foundation 
for the MCU. But I do think that Avengers is, and I think actually for me, phase one is uh, at its best. And thereafter, MCU is at its best when it gets the origin story right and then the team up right. I'm never quite confident that Marvel has got like the in between those two. But when it introduces us to a, to a hero, it tends to do it really well. And when it brings heroes together, like Guardians of the Galaxy, like any of the Avengers films, it seems to do it pretty well. So yeah, that's my pick for phase one. Do you know what would be fun to talk about in relation to phase one? Some Rotten Tomatoes scores. Here we, <laughs> go. here we go, here we go. As always, um, props to the sequelizers for introducing this. Um, for those who aren't sure, um, or not sure why I'm mentioning this, um, Rotten Tomatoes is an extremely problematic and not terribly reliable um, source of um, am amalgamation of uh, critic and audience scores where anything that gets over 60% um, is classed as fresh. But it's always quite fun to talk about. So what I've done is I've identified the Rotten Tomatoes critical scores for Thor, Captain America, the first Avenger and the Avengers. And what we're now going to do, I'm now going to quiz my fellow potty people on what they think the scores are and whomever is closest in each case is the winner. So, gentlemen, beginning with Thor from 2011. What do you believe is the Rotten Tomatoes critical score, James? Um, I'm going to take a guess and say 74%. 74%. All right. Russell, what do you think for Thor? I think it's slightly... Well, do I think it's slightly better? I don't know if I do think it's slightly better reviewed. Um. I'm trying to remember how it was reviewed at the time. I don't think this was loved, but it wasn't hated. So I think James is fairly close. And I'm going to be cheeky and say 73%. 73. Okie dokie. <laughs> Bye. Sorry, James. <laughs> Moving on to also 2011's Captain America, the first Avenger. Russell, what do you think is the Rotten Tomatoes score? I think this was liked but not loved. I'm going to give it 77%. 77%. Okay. And James, what do you think for the first Avenger? I think it was liked, but I think there was a less of a love feeling as compared to Ford that year. Um, 68%. 68%. Okay. And last but not least, for 2012's The Avengers, what do you believe is the Rotten Tomatoes score, James? Oh, this was a big one. Um, 90%. 90. Okie dokie. Russell, what do you think? So it's whether I'm ambitious and go above that or I am cautious and go below it. Because, again, I do think this is pretty universally praised for obvious reasons. It's a really good film. I'm going to go with 92%. Oh, God, what am I doing? 90, yeah, 92. Okay, 92%. All right, let me 
total these are. Well, that is interesting. Well, you wouldn't think this would be possible. Okay, well. But do you know what? It's actually a tie. Excuse me? I know, you wouldn't think it would be possible. <laughs> We've done that. It's How did you questions. do that? That's incredible, yeah. Um, I mean, okay, very technically, I suppose it isn't. But in terms of simply who is closest, um, uh, with four... Uh, Russell said 73, James said 74. The actual score for Thor is 77%. Ooh. Okay, so James uh. wins that one by being closer. For Captain America, the first Avenger, Russell said 77, James said 68, and the actual score is 79. So Ooh. Russell wins that one. And then for the Avengers, Russell said 92. James said 90. No. Take a guess. What's the actual 91. score? 91. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, yeah. So that, that's actually very funny. I suppose very technically, Russell made, well, I mean, Russell was closer on the first adventure, but then, yeah, whatever. That's I'm a draw. A tie. That's a draw. Yeah, it's a draw. Well done. Uh, that's got to be the first time when there are. Th when we did it. A choice of. Three between two, and you managed to split the vote. That's very impressive, guys. Well done. Wow. <laughs> and I imagine, Russell, you said 92, and they said, what am I doing? And you were probably originally meant to go for 91. So, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I just I couldn't remember if it was beloved or just really liked, like if it was a four-star film or a five-star film. It's a five-star film, apparently. So, yeah. yeah. My initial sure, gut, I... my initial gut instinct with the Avengers was ninety four percent. So I'm <laughs> so glad I didn't go with that. Yeah, yeah, craziness. Well, doubtless we'll revisit uh, the MCU um, mm -hmm. in the future. But shall we make some recommendations to our beloved listeners? Yeah, sounds good. What have I to fear? The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves, sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Yes, I've met them. Yeah, takes us a while to get any traction, I'll give you that one. But let's do a head count here. Your brother, the demigod, a super soldier, a living legend who kind of lives up to the legend, a man with breathtaking anger management issues, a couple of master assassins, and you, big fella. You've managed to piss off every single one of them. That was the plan. Not a great plan. When they come, and they will, they'll come for you. I have an army. We have a Hulk. My category for this month is something old. And I've taken that quite literally because I'm going for the 100-year-old film, Nosferatu. Not a sequel to Nosferatu 1. <laughs> Sorry, I had to make that awful joke. But... Yes, I am going for F.W. Murnau's unofficial adaptation of Bram Stoker's iconic novel. This is a film which was very nearly lost to time because Stoker's heirs sued over this film and a court ruling ordered all copies of the film to be destroyed. Thankfully, several prints survived. And what we've got left is an influential work of art. Um, it what. 
Murnau does is relocates the story to um, Germany and strips the tale right down to its basics. So you got the same basic story. A vampire moves from his isolated castle to a brand new location where he preys on the wife of his real estate agent. And what Murnau does is use all the tools in his arsenal to craft something truly unsettling from the very use of shadows to Count Warlock's appearance with his rat teeth, pointed ears and spindly fingers. And it helps that this creepy character is given such presence by the magnificent Max Shrek, who is not related to the Mike Myers character. To our knowledge. Mm. And I've been through various cinematic adaptations of Dracula recently, and bizarrely, this unofficial take on the source material is my favourite adaptation. And I just think it's a quite a creepy film and really unsettling. And this is a film in the public domain that it's been around for 100 years. It even had a cameo on SpongeBob SquarePants, but it absolutely still holds up to this day. And I would really recommend this important piece of history to film history to anybody who hasn't seen it. Or if you have, go watch it again. It's on YouTube. So who is our something new this week? I am. And I'm going to take us from one toothy adversary to another by talking about Prey. Now, Prey, that's Prey with an E, not an A. Um, It's fair to say, I think, that Prey is the best Predator movie since 1987. Granted, that's kind of a low bar. Uh, But when you think about it, it's actually a franchise of seven movies because we've had Predator, Predator 2, Predators, Alien vs. Predator, Alien vs. Predator Requiem, and The Predator. And then this year we get what's fantastic, listeners. You couldn't see this, but James and Russell at exactly the same moment did a synchronized face palm at the mention um, of The Predator. Um, which I I haven't actually seen. I've not seen that one. Um, And I'm sure it's not worth my time. But I'm such a completist, I probably will. Um, What Prey does, um, directed by uh, Dan Trachtenberg, is it takes us back to what made the original Predator so effective. It is atmospheric. Um, It's using the landscape effectively. It builds the suspense Um, And it focuses upon an individual's encounter with something that they do not understand and how they adapt to it. Along the way, it also happens to make some um, smart comments about um, gender, race, about colonialism. Um, So it's got some pretty impressive diversity. Um, As mentioned previously, it did go directly to Disney Plus, which is kind of a shame because I think it would have been quite something to see in the cinema. Um, because of, because it makes great use of landscape um, set um, in uh, the mid eighteenth <clears throat> uh, century, um, in um, seventeen fifty two. Uh, so at a time when French uh, trappers are moving across um, the American Midwest, while the um, Comanche people of that area are uh, starting to encounter um, said invaders. Um, there's actually a version of this on Disney Plus, which is in Comanche. 
so you can uh, watch it in a you know in a different language which is all the more interesting and notably when the french um, characters appear their dialogue is not subtitled so it adds to a sense of um, the alien the other and that's precisely what of course the predator represents um and you know our central uh our central our female protagonist um, does a great job of um stepping up to the challenge and uh indeed the the, the multiple challenges um that she encounters culturally and then well <laughs> interplanetarily so i think that uh, much like um as i said about a nope which i said had a great combination of referentiality and innovation um i think that prey brilliantly balances homage and innovation in what I will describe as a thrilling and visceral coming-of-age survival horror, because it's a sci-fi survival survival horror. I do like my portmanteau. I do. I, uh, sorry, not sorry. Um, yeah. Well, so that's uh, my new recommendation. If you haven't checked Prey out um, on Disney Plus, then do. Which just leaves me for my something not a movie or a snaff which is something not a film I realise I've butchered it. Um, before I say that, I will say I've watched Prey twice and I adore it. And I watched Nosferatu in Birmingham in a giant cathedral with an organ playing along to it. It was great. Wow. So really, yeah. Sometimes you want to watch films one way. Sometimes you want to watch them another way. I have for you two TV shows. I was going to do one, but I realised I should probably do two. Uh, and no, it is not Hey Dougie, even though I watched today a film, a episode that ended with a reference to Inception that I almost fell out of my chair. I was so happy to see. Now, my two TV shows are two superhero TV shows that are both rather funny. Uh, over on Channel 4, or all four, if you don't want to watch it when it's on, is Harley Quinn, which reaches its third series. And Harley Quinn is a delightful animated uh, journey through this DC character who's become more and more prominent as... Uh, over the last few years but this is a really fabulous exploration of her as a character of her going through uh self-betterment she becomes a better person over the course of these seasons and she's now in a rather endearing romantic uh relationship with poison ivy and it's just this warm funny show that's also rude and dark and violent and hilarious and does stuff for the characters that you're surprised that warner brothers and dc allowed to happen but they do and it has great fun tearing down many of its hit of the heroes, including Batman and Commissioner Gordon. And I enjoy watching it every single week. And you compare it nicely with She-Hulk, which is the MCU's first foray into um, what do they call it? like a regular comedy TV uh, sitcom? A sitcom. It is a sitcom starring She-Hulk and various other cameoing Marvel characters. Wong has popped up a couple of times, and he is always great fun. Fun. Uh, we've got a certain, uh, how is he described? Basically, Daredevil's going to pop up in the next couple of episodes. And yeah, She-Hulk is great fun. It's very funny. Some of the CGI is a tad ropey, I will say that. But apart from that, I'm having a great deal of fun with both of these two shows. And it just shows the breadth of what superheroes can be for us. Because if we're going to have a million films and tv shows about superheroes why not have them interesting why not have them funny why not have them silly why not have them dealing with the trauma of trying to get a date as a human and then realizing that as they're 
superhero to ego, it's much easier. Why not have uh, Wong go through the trauma of not being able to watch The Sopranos without it being spoiled? All this we've all endured trying to catch up with a long, popular TV show. I mean, I have yet to watch Game of Thrones, but at some point I might, and I'm fairly certain I know every single spoiler there is about Game of Thrones, for example. I've never finished Breaking Bad, but I know how it ends, which is is frustrating. And yeah, these are both delightful, easy for you to watch and just take some of the seriousness out of a genre that, you know, is multifaceted and complicated and fun. And we have a lot of Marvel and DC and various other comic book uh, adaptations. Some are better than others. I'll be honest, I'm not filled with hope about Black Adam, but I am filled with hope for Black Panther 2. So that's where I stand in terms of our future. But yeah, She-Hulk shows what Marvel is doing on TV is great. And Harley Quinn shows that when DC, when Warner Brothers aren't cancelling DC projects and releasing them, they can be great. So go off and watch both of those. And also watch the Hey Dougie Dream episode for the Inception reference at the end. Because I have never been prouder of my partner than when she was like, that's an Inception reference, isn't it? And I was like, it is! Yes, it's Inception, you're correct. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, was fun. <laughs> oh, and one more Nosferatu. I looked it up just now. Max Shrek is the name of Christopher Walken's character in Batman Returns. Yes. One of your favourites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I was aware of that Max Shrek before I was aware of Nosferatu. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 I, I, I'll echo that um, Nosferatu still stands up after, you know, after a hundred years. I and mean, I remember seeing it on original release because, hey, I'm that old. <laughs> um, but uh, um, uh, but the idea the, the idea of seeing that in a cathedral with a live organ um, accompaniment sounds, uh, yeah, tremendous. It was mm. haunting mm. and remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes hear about these screenings of um, particular, often horror films in particular settings, just to add to the atmosphere. I'd be up for that, um, or to uh, I'd be up similarly the one you hear about watching Jaws um, while floating in a big rubber ring um, in the lagoon. And I think you know I'd be up for that. But one thing I wouldn't do, which I have read about, is um, watching The Descent in a cave. <laughs> oh no fucking way! <laughs> Oh, hey, remembering our last episode, how about watching Paul while suspended? Oh, God. <laughs> well, maybe on maybe a film screening at the top of the Eiffel Tower. I don't no. even want to watch the film that's projected that high. I don't want to go up there and then watch the same film. No, no, fair enough, fair enough. I imagine the logistics wouldn't work either anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure how immersive I need cinema to be, I'll be honest. <laughs> Hmm. Could be worse. You could be like watching Gaspar Noe's Love in Immersive. Or Irreversible oh, you... in The Final Club. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Surely if you're watching Gaspar Noe's Love, Immersive, it would you'd be in the midst of an orgy. <laughs> I haven't seen Gaspar Noe's Love. I've Neither only seen I, one but... Gaspar Noe film, which I've is Irreversible that. and I don't think I'll ever watch one of his films. Yeah, all I know about that film is someone jizzes into the camera. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Ooh. So bring your ponchos. 
Noted. And on that note, <laughs> we've given you a couple of TV, a couple of TV shows, several films, and other stuff we're excited for. Uh, yeah, not gonna... not so excited that we're going to be jizzing into the camera. Yeah, uh, I must stress that is not body people policy. That is not anything to do with anything we watch. We don't agreed, agreed. But yeah, Look, if James wants to watch. Love, no, <laughs> look after your electric. Look after your electrics, people. Especially when 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 Rodders is around, it seems. Oh my god! Putting us away from this. I regret saying anything. (laughs) But James, you can keep talking. Where can people find you? I promise I won't do that on my socials. Uh, I'm on Twitter at RoddersJ04, spelled with two Ds. I write reviews at thereviewingrodders.co.uk. I also write reviews for Moving Pictures Film Club, uh, Bloody Good Screen, uh, various various other places, but they're all collated at The Reviewing Rodders. So, yeah, come check it out. Um, Vincent, where can people find your excellent writings and social media presence? You can find put output there. Well, you can... (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, you can find my... Um, expostulations um, but hey hey, I said expostulations if your mind is going somewhere else then that's on you not me I didn't even think that I did of course you did um, <laughs> anyway you can find my words um, by by going searching for uh, Dr. Gain that's D-R-G-A-I-N-E on Twitter Instagram and Letterboxd that's where I'll post and on Twitter I'll post reviews to um, my review links to my reviews for the Geek Show, Moving Pictures Film Club, um, the Critical Movie Critics, and Bloody Good Screen, um, as well as links to other stuff I do. You can even um, look me up on um, Amazon to find uh, the uh, link to the book I contributed, the chapter two on Thor. Russell, um, if I wanted to have some sort of um, smackdown with you in 1752. How would I find you? Well, we'd all jump in a time machine and head off there. But to get me to the point where the time machine is at, you can find me on Twitter at Russ Loves Movies, which is where I post any reviews or podcast appearance I have. I just popped up on the Is Paul Dano OK podcast talking about Judy Greer's and a film called Driven, which is fine. She is better than the film is. Um or you can find me on the other channel that I do, which is the sister channel to this, which is not just for kids, where we are in the midst of our modern animation series. We've had Chicken Run, Wallace and Gromit, uh, the How to Train Your Dragon films, the B-movie, and the bad guys. And I've got about another 45 or so films to cover. Because why not? <laughs> but yeah, it's a really great series so far i've loved all my chats i've got a couple more that i've recorded and i'm having real fun of it and keep adding films to my list because they keep releasing amazing animated films like Wendell and wild like gilmar del doris pinocchio but not robert zemeckis's pinocchio which we shan't talk about but is entirely terrifying and so all that is is go off and watch something fabulous not robert zemeckis's pinocchio that is a late in the day disregard for me don't touch it uh, it's watch who friend with rabbit instead that's good to make us but yeah go off and watch lots of fun stuff 
keep yourself safe. Try not to look at the news. It's all very bleak for us Brits. And until next time, we're the potty people and we're saying we love you. Have fun. Bye-bye. Bye. Doodles. It knows how to hunt. I know how to survive. Thank <laughs> you.